Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Today, we're back with Dr. Creasy and his Logos travelers in Israel, where they're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Now, time for the show. Here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. So welcome to the Mount of Beatitudes, a place very important to Jesus, a place very important to all of us. We are literally walking in the footsteps of Jesus as we're here. And I'd like to begin, Jesus grew up in Nazareth, as you know, and we'll be going to Nazareth tomorrow. Uh, now from Nazareth to Cana, it's about three and a half miles. They were neighbor villages. And from Nazareth here to Capernaum is 43 miles. We walked that two years, three years ago, we walked the Jesus Trail from Nazareth to Capernaum, just like Jesus would have done, the very same trail that he walked upon. But why did Jesus come here to Capernaum? Why to this particular area? And I'd like to start here with John chapter 2, the wedding at Cana. Now we'll be going through Cana tomorrow, but the wedding at Cana. And I read, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, and I said on the bus, why was the wine gone? Because Jesus had invited all of his friends who hadn't been invited to begin with, you see. <laughs> when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, why would she say that unless he had something to do with it, right? <laughs> And he said to her, woman, why do you involve me? And he replied, my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to his servants, do what he tells you. And she looked at him and raised one eyebrow. I can see it. <laughs> now nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. So if they're 20 gallon jugs and there are six of them, that's what? 240 gallons of water. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And so they did. And he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. That is the caterer, the guy who was in charge of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Now then he called the bridegroom. And he said, I've made a really embarrassing mistake. Uh, you know, everyone brings out the best wine first, and then the cheap wine after everybody's had a lot to drink already. <laughs> and I, I'm really sorry, but I got it reversed. <laughs> now, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So he turns the water into wine at Cana. And between Nazareth and Cana, that was the Napa Valley of Israel. That's where the good wine was made. And he made the very, very best. Now, after the wedding at Cana, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, who did he take to Cana? Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, they all went with him from Jerusalem. They were there for the fe uh, feast. So they come here to Peter's house at Capernaum 
for what I like to think of as the after party. Right? <laughs> and when he was here at, K at Capernaum, what did he see? Well, we were at Magdala last night, and that's just right down parallel with the Sea of Galilee, the West Coast, a little bit further south, maybe what, a 10-minute drive? Just right down the street, if you will. And if you stood at Magdala or Capernaum, where we'll go later, and you had a good throwing arm, you could throw a rock onto the Via Maris, the main international trade route from Egypt to Damascus and then on to Mesopotamia or Asia Minor. So if you want to get the gospel message out to the world, what better place than Capernaum? Because all the international traffic is moving on that highway. In addition to that, Jesus stayed at Peter's house. And when we go to Capernaum, I'll tell that whole story. But he stayed with Peter. And Peter and his brother Andrew and James and his brother John were partners in a fishing business, commercial fishing business, with the father of James and John, Zebedee. Zebedee's wife, Salome, is the sister or sister-in-law of Mary. So James and John are Jesus' cousins, and cousins in the Middle East. You know, when you deal with people here uh, in Israel, particularly in Egypt, uh, my, I have a friend who has a friend who has a cousin who can do that for you, right? <laughs> Jesus had relatives here. James and John are his cousins, and they're partners in the fishing business with Peter and Andrew. So Jesus stays with Peter. It's a perfect location. And as we've seen, he would oftentimes, at the end of the day, perhaps after dinner at night or getting up early in the morning, he'd come up into the hills to pray. He also came here to teach and preach. We have a, a story of him teaching 5,000 people on a hillside. Where's the hillside? Right here. We're on top of it. And if you go outside and you look down the hill, you'll see that it's concave shape. It's a natural amphitheater. And back in the 80s, a graduate student did a dissertation on that hillside, the acoustics of the hillside, and found out by planting all the electronic instruments that the acoustics on the hillside out here are very much like those at the Disney Center. They're really good. We used to be able to walk down that hill. Now it's private farmland. You saw the banana plants there. And they've blocked it off. The owners blocked it off because all the nutty Christians were walking through their fields, right? <laughs> but we used to go down. I'd sit everyone on the hillside, go down toward the bottom, and talk in a normal voice like I am now. And everybody could hear perfectly. So you could put 5,000 people on that hillside and they could hear quite well. And that's where Jesus would come and teach. It's where he taught the Sermon on the Mount. And we are on the Mount. So we turn over to Matthew chapter 4 at verse 23. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. He went throughout Galilee, the Northern Territory here. Our first century historian Josephus tells us there were 204 towns and villages in Galilee. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching and preaching in those towns and villages. Now, I know as a teacher that if you have a really good lesson, you don't do it one time, stick it in a drawer, and never do it again. 
you do it over and over again, adapting it for the different audiences that you speak to. You might have an audience for, well, we have a half hour here to teach, and I would do a teaching in a half hour. If we had two hours in class, I could do the same teaching in class and make it two hours, expand it and make it two hours. And I think Jesus often did that. And when we read the Sermon on the Mount, we find that it's very carefully structured. There is a clever and memorable introduction. Blessed is A, for they shall be B. Blessed is C, for they shall be D, and so on. A clever and memorable introduction to get your attention. And then there are six propositions that exceed the law. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, so six propositions that exceed the law. And then six concrete actions to implement the law, and then a three-part call to action. It is a very simple structure. Clever and memorable introduction, six propositions that exceed the law, six concrete actions to implement the law, and what are you gonna do about it? A three-point call to action. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And I'll bet he did this about 204 times in one form or another. So we turn over to the actual Sermon on the Mount. Chapter 5, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach. So they would be on the hillside. He would be down, further down on the hillside, so his voice would carry upward. We saw the Arbel Cliff that Isaac pointed out. The breeze off the Mediterranean comes right through. It narrows there at the cliff and his voice would carry right up the hill. It's perfect. So he sat down and he began to teach. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now you would think, blessed are the rich in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But no, we have nine beatitudes. Nine beatitudes, beatus, Latin begins with beatus, blessed. Nine beatitudes, and they're not random. They build on one another. Blessed are the poor, not the poor, but the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's nothing blessed about being poor. When I was a young graduate student, I was really poor. I would go across the parking lot of my little studio apartment on Saturday morning and collect soda bottles and take them to Safeway, cash them in, buy enough loose rice for what I had in bottles, walk back with my bag of rice, pick up ketchup at McDonald's, and that was dinner for the rest of the week. Right? I've been poor, I've been not poor, not poor is considerably better, I can tell you. But blessed are the poor in spirit. That is, those people who recognize the gaping hole in their heart, the, the utter need for God. You can't take one step closer to a savior until you recognize you need to be saved. And it's that recognition of the emptiness in your heart that only God can fill. And that's the first step toward him. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. It doesn't exclude mourning in grief, but blessed are those who mourn. For what? For the emptiness in their own heart. You can feel empty in your own heart and you can go out and hang yourself. 
but blessed are those who recognize that emptiness and mourn over it, who desperately long for it to be filled. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Not meek in the sense of, well, if people attack me, I'll just crawl under the, under the altar and let them beat on me. No, Moses in, Deut Moses in Deuteronomy says, Moses, it says Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. I always think that's funny because Moses wrote it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Moses was the guy who went to Pharaoh, the most powerful leader of the ancient world, and he said to him, let my people go. He was no coward. Meekness means that you recognize your position before God. We're not God, right? God is God, we're down here. And when we get to heaven, we're not going to go, oh, I'm so happy to be here and climb up in his lap and he's going to give us a big hug and a kiss on the cheek. No, when we come before the presence of God, we'll be flat on our faces in front of him. And that's proper. Recognizing the magnitude, the awesomeness, the, the extraordinary strength and power of God Almighty who created the universe with one hand tied behind his back. It's like facing a quasar. Recognizing who we are before God. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Recognizing the utter poverty in your own heart, mourning over it and desperately longing for it to be filled, seeing yourself in a proper relationship to God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who truly desire, who truly want to be seen as right before God. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. If you find yourself, you get to that position where you recognize the emptiness, you mourn over it, you long to be right before God, then you have to recognize too the emptiness in other people's lives and have compassion for them because they're just like you are. It doesn't matter what color they are. It doesn't matter what race they are. It doesn't matter what religion they are. They all have the very same longing for their heart to be filled with God. So we can't say, well, I have God, they don't. No, we have to recognize that as well. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Once we recognize all these things, then God cleanses us. We think of baptism. Baptism is, in, in one sense, a symbolic spiritual cleansing. But how do we get that? You know, that's an outward sign of an inner reality. That's what God will do. Once we move through this process, we are cleansed by God. Blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. So once we get to that position, then our job is to walk that out into the world, to take it to others, to be a peacemaker among people, to find peace, not just between people, but between people and God, to lead them to God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When you get to that place, you will be persecuted. Jesus was crucified. All of the apostles except John were martyred. 
and how many after that were persecuted. You know, we don't have to think a whole lot about that today in our particular culture, our particular nation, but you might recall a few years back when ISIS was strong and there were 27 Egyptians who were captured by ISIS. They were working in the, uh, uh, in, in the oil industry, laborers, and they were captured by ISIS and they were executed. Remember that? 27 were beheaded on camera. And um, when we get to Jerusalem and we're making our way toward the Holy Sepulchre, I don't believe it's there anymore, but shortly after that happened, there was a banner hung up on the Via Dolorosa, the Way of the Cross, that had a picture of those 27 martyrs on their knees about to be beheaded. They were Christians, and they were told that they would be let go if they renounced their faith. They wouldn't do it, and they were beheaded. That happens today. There are more Christians being persecuted today in other parts of the world than there ever were in the first three centuries. More. If you find, if you reach this place, you will be persecuted in one way or another. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. No, because of me. People will work against you. They'll work against you. So rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the very same way, they, were per they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if you're persecuted, so be it. Goes with the territory. And then Jesus says, you are the salt of of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Now, I never understood that. Salt is salt. How can it lose its saltiness? And I've heard all kinds of explanations, but I never heard a better explanation than when we were in Egypt visiting with the Bedouins out in the desert in the Sinai. And it was a wonderful visit, and it wasn't a commercial kind of thing. Uh, our colleague in Egypt arranged it for us. It was a Bedouin encampment, and uh, we went into one of their tents, and, uh, and we were told about the Bedouin life. There aren't many Bedouins left anymore because, well, their children grow up, they go to the city, they work, they get an education, they, they don't want that life anymore. It's a life of moving from place to place with sheep and goats, but uh, and a very ancient life. But we, had, we were there with an authentic Bedouin uh, family, and we sat around uh, in their tent uh, around a fire. The women, two women, dug a hole in the ground, put twigs in it and sticks, and made a fire. And they made flatbread for us. And they mixed the flour, with a little water and some oil, a little bit of oil, mixed it into dough, and then much like making a pizza, you know, spun it around and made it real thin. And then right over the fire, they placed a metal dome, and the dome heated up. And uh, once it was all hot, they put that big tortilla, if you will, 
over the dome and it began to cook. And with a, a stick, they flipped it over a couple of times and then pulled it off, broke it up and put it in a little basket and we all ate some of the bread. And then they made another one and another one because we had a fairly big group. And they made two or three and then the fire began to go down. And one of the women took the, the stick, lifted up the metal dome, reached in a little pouch on the side, threw something in, and the fire went back up again. What was that? It was salt from the Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is 35% salt, mineral salt, and one of the minerals in that salt is magnesium. In fact, they, they, they mine the magnesium down at the end of the Dead Sea. What happens when magnesium hits fire? It flares up. So the salt, you are the salt of the earth. And what were they cooking in? The earthen oven. You are the salt of the earth. And the fire goes up. That's what we're to be. The salt from the Dead Sea that goes into the earthen oven and flames it up. That's what we're to do for other people. I never knew that until I met the Bedouins in Egypt. <laughs> you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. We were at Beit Shan yesterday, one of the 10 Decapolis cities. Decapolis, Deca, 10, Polis cities, right? Nine of them are over on the east side of the Jordan River or the Sea of Galilee. If we were up here at night, and we looked across to the Golan Heights, you can see lights over there. They're the Decop nine Decapolis cities. Not the same as they were then, but when Jesus was here, on the Mount of Beatitudes at night, he could look over and count nine towns because the lights were all on. The oil lamps are all burning, you could see them. One of them, Beit Shan, is down further south on the, east, on the west side. But you are the light of the world. When he said that, I'll bet he gestured over to the Golan Heights. You are the light of the world. At night, you can see the lights over there. A town on a hill cannot be hidden. They're over there on the hill. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. You don't light the oil lamp and then cover it up. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the very same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now that's a pretty memorable introduction. Blessed is A, for they shall be B. Blessed is C, for they shall be D. Blessed is E, for they shall be F. And notice, each one of them is counterintuitive. Blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I would think, blessed are the rich in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn, they will be comforted. I would think blessed are the joyful. It's the exact opposite of what you expect. And by repeating that pattern, blessed is they for they shall be C, blessed is C for they shall be D, and the, and the rhythm of it and the rhyming of it, you can remember it. It's a memorable, clever introduction. And when he finished with that, I'll bet people said, well, I'll be darned, never thought of it that way. And then he goes on to the six propositions that exceed the law, the six concrete actions to implement the law, and the three-part call to action. That will preach, I can tell you. That works. 
and he, he, how, does Matthew, how did Matthew and, and the other gospel writers get this so perfect? Well, if they accompanied him on the teaching around Galilee, they probably heard one version or another 204 times. <laughs> and they could put it together. And indeed, they did. So here we are on the Mount of Beatitudes. And I want to give you free time to go out there and look around and walk and see and smell and feel where you are. This is where Jesus taught. It's where he walked. It's where the people that he healed lived. Right here, right on this Mount of Beatitudes, right down in Capernaum, along the shore of the Sea of Galilee. 90% of his public ministry is right here. How cool is that? All right. We have, we, uh, our Iron Nun was very, uh, very gracious to allow us to have the inside here. I've actually never been in here before, and big lock on the gate and everything. And uh, so we, we'd like to, uh, when we use sites like this, especially in a gracious way, take up uh, any, any you know, a couple dollars you might have. This whole area up here, the whole Mount of Beatitudes, is supported solely by uh, people who, by us, who use it. So let me uh, give this to Bill, and as you go out, uh, drop some, a dollar or two into it, and uh, we'll get back together on the bus. Right now it's 9.30, we have 15 minutes. Okay, so you can look around, and, uh, and that will be it. Hey, let's close with a prayer. Father, we thank you for all of your blessings. We thank you once again for the blessing of, of being here in this extraordinary place of our entire trip to Israel, to me, this is the highlight, the Mount of Beatitudes. Help us to see that, to really feel Jesus' presence here with us. He is with us here today. Help us to see that and to truly understand it. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, back to the show. Well, here we are at Capernaum the headquarters of Jesus' public ministry. For three years, he lived here in Peter's house, right across the way, we can see it, and he taught in this synagogue regularly. Every week he would teach in the synagogue. And I'd like to look at a couple of stories that take place here from the Gospel according to Mark. Now, I'm in Mark chapter 1 at verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. Right here, across the way. He went there and began to teach. We'll go into that synagogue and we'll see how he taught. Uh, Isaac will demonstrate that when we're in there. Now the people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority and not as other teachers did. So he didn't say, well, Rabbi so-and-so says this, but Rabbi X, Y, and Z said that. No, he taught with authority. And people were amazed at that. Just then, as he was teaching, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, what would you do if that happened? I've been teaching for a long time, the Bible classes, and uh, 
down in San Diego, we had uh, several classes that were five, six hundred people. Opening night at Our Lady of Grace, we had 1,200 people in a class. Well, who comes to classes like that? Well, I look out at all of you, kind of weird people. No. <laughs> but periodically, you get some really strange people in class. And I was teaching a class at St. Monica's in Santa Monica, five-year-long class. And we had maybe 400 people in that class. And, um, and I really enjoyed that class. I liked it a lot. It was in the sanctuary. And I was standing up in the front, right in front of the altar. I had a little lectern there. And, and I was teaching. And one evening, evening class seven to nine, one evening, as I'm teaching, this guy sitting on the right-hand side, way toward the back, I, I could see him. He was kind of talking to himself, a little strange, you know. And I'm teaching, and this guy got up, and he started coming up the aisle, and he was cursing at me. I'm thinking, okay, what do we do with this? You know? <laughs> now, that class, fortunately, some of you know Joe Sakura. Uh, Joe Sakura has uh, had a radio show on Relevant Radio, Immaculate Heart Radio, then Relevant Radio. I was on with Joe every Friday evening for about three years on the radio. And uh, Joe, at that time, had been a Santa Monica cop. And he and his partner came to class on that night, on Wednesday nights. And they would come before they went on shift. He worked night shifts mostly. And they sat to my left, three rows back, right by the aisle. And as this guy's walking up, I look at Joe and his partner, and they just went like that and nodded. And when the guy passed them, and they're in their regular clothes, right? When the guy walked past them, Joe and his partner stood up, and they just scooped him right up and took him out. <laughs> I thought, that was pretty good. But Jesus didn't have anybody to do that. So the man said, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus said very sternly, be quiet, shut up, come out of him. Now the impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. Now imagine that, the man's walking up toward Jesus, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Shut up, come out of him. He's not saying it to the man, he's saying it to the thing in the man. And right with that, the man, starts convulsing, heading toward the floor. His face looked up, his mouth open really wide. <laughs> this thing came roaring out of him and went flying around the synagogue and out the front door. Whoa. The people were amazed. And they said, what in the world? A new teaching and with authority. Why, well, he even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spread quickly all over the whole region of Galilee. So what happened immediately after that? Did he say, okay, everybody sit back down now and we'll get... Well, I think it was probably over at that point. And the people left. Jesus went out the front door of the synagogue and 37 yards across the street to Peter's house. Now, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew right over there. 37 yards away. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever, and they immediately told Jesus about her. Now, what would they expect would happen when they went into the house? They would smell dinner cooking, right? Peter walked in. 
Uh, what's wrong? And Peter's wife said, Mom is sick. That fever's back again. Now, what kind of fever would that have been? Not from guinea worms, right? <laughs> but what would it be? Malaria, right? A recurring bout of malaria. And she's lying there with a heavy fever. And Jesus went into her room and he said, well, she sure does look sick. <laughs> How are you feeling? Oh, terrible. Here, give me your hand. And he helped her get up. And as she's rising up off the bed, putting her feet on the floor, standing up, the fever is draining away. And by the time she's standing upright, she said, oh, I feel much better. I better get dinner going. And that's where she went, what she went to do. He went to her, took her hand, helped her up. The fever left her, and she began to wait on them. That is, prepare dinner. Now that evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. Why? Because they had been in the synagogue. They saw what happened with the demon-possessed man. Now it's after dinner. The sun goes down. People walk around. Sabbath is over. They bring everybody who's sick in any way to Peter's house. The whole town gathered at the door. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Remember up at Caesarea Philippi, I said in the Gospel according to Mark, there's a really important issue about Jesus' self-identity, who he is. People continually say in Mark, who is this man who can do these things? We know who he is because we're told in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Beginning the gospel, uh, let me turn to it. Beginning the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. So we know as readers who he is. The demons know who he is. We know who you are, the Holy One of God. But the disciples keep saying, who is this man who can do this? So there's a whole issue of his identity in Mark. So all these people came from everywhere. And he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. So the demons know, we know, the disciples don't know. That creates a narrative tension in the gospel. Now, everybody finally went home. It's late at night. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Now, I wonder where that might be. How about the Mount of Beatitudes, 20 minutes up the hill? Simon and his companions got up in the morning, and he was gone. So they went to look for him. They didn't have to look far because he always went up there. And they found him, and they said, everybody's looking for you. And he said, let's go somewhere else to a nearby village so I can preach there also. That's why I've come. So he traveled throughout Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. So all of that happens right here. Now, they come back after this teaching circuit and in chapter 2. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people that heard him had heard that he came home. And they gathered in such large numbers at Peter's house that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. So the people are in Peter's house, they're around outside, they're looking through the windows, and no room for anybody. 
Now some men came, bring to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. So the man's on a, like a litter and four men are carrying him. He can't move at all. What happened to the man? Who knows? Uh, I like to think of it as an accident, right? These are fishing, fishermen and they're out on fishing boats and you can imagine on a day like today the wind is blowing and they're out working on the boat and a, a random gust of wind hit the sail, spun the boom around, hit the guy in the back of the neck, walked, knocked him in the water and he was paralyzed. And he's been paralyzed for a long time. So they brought this paralyzed man and they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd. So they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on down through the roof. Now we talked a little bit about the architecture of houses at this time, built in a rectangle with a courtyard and the steps would go up the side to the roof. That's where you sat out, you looked at the water and your nice plastic lawn chair like Peter down at uh, Joppa. And, uh, so they can't get in the house, so they go up on the roof, up the stairs, and they begin digging a hole through the roof. Now imagine Peter inside his house. It's a nice house. It's right on the, it's on the water. And as Jesus is teaching, he's seated, the people are all standing around, and debris begins falling down. <laughs> what? Can you imagine Peter? The hell are you doing on my roof? Get off my roof! <laughs> and they lower this man down in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that's really curious. They lower this man. Now, what was he can't move, but what was the expression on his face? As he lowered down and he comes right to Jesus eye level their eyes meet and Jesus didn't say arise and walk he said your sins are forgiven why was it the man's sins who caused his paralysis I don't think so but imagine you're a 32 year old man you're in the fishing business you have a family and you have a big accident like that and you're totally paralyzed. All you can do is lie on your bed and stare at the ceiling. And you think of all the things you could have done, you should have done, all the things that you had said that you shouldn't have said and you shouldn't have done. And that's all you can think about. And now there's absolutely nothing you can do about it because you're lying there flat on your back paralyzed. You can't do a thing. Jesus looked into his eyes and he saw right into the man's heart at the root of his pain. And he said, son, your sins are forgiven. And with that, tears well up in the man's eyes. Now some of the teachers of the law were sitting there thinking, who does this guy think he is? It's blasphemy. Who can forgive sin except God alone? Well, that's correct. Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit, what they were thinking. All he had to do was look at their expressions, frowning and talking to each other. Wait, what's he doing? And he said, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this man, your sins are forgiven or get up, 
take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, get up, take your mat, and go home. And with that, the man felt in his body. He felt something again. And he sat up and he put his feet on the ground, amazed. And he picked up the mat and walked out the front door. And the crowd parted like the Red Sea. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. All of this happens right here. There's the synagogue, 37 yards across the street, Peter's house. And right where we are, the headquarters, the epicenter of Jesus' public ministry, as Isaac said, no more than an hour in any direction, 90% of what Jesus said and did. It all happened right here. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Visit LogosBibleStudy.com to learn more about studying online, in live classes, and traveling with Dr. Creasy and Logos Bible Study. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.